Have you ever been humbled? Have you ever had one of those moments where you discovered, I don't know as much as I thought I knew, or I'm not quite as skilled as I thought I was, and I know that now. Oh, I can think of so many examples. Going way, way back, too. Yeah. When I was a kid, I thought I was really good at video games. We had this uh, gaming system called the Atari 1500, and uh, I had one joystick and one button, and I mastered that joystick, I mastered that one button, and I was pretty good at Missile Command and Space Invaders. And then, what do you think happened when my nephew said, hey, do you want to play Call of Duty with us? And they hand me this controller that's got triggers and buttons on both sides and a little joystick with your thumb. And so they, they were trying to help me out, and they loaded me up. They gave me, like, the best weapons there were and all this kind of thing. And they were taking me out with their mess kit. I mean, it was just humbling, humbling. And then my freshman year of college, when I was at college, um, I played intramural broomball. And we had a really good team. Right, we had some people from our floor. We got into the finals. Well, a bunch of years later, there were some guys from church, really good athletes. They were great track athletes, soccer athletes. Some of them had played, played intramural broomball. They said, let's put together a team. Let's get in, get in a league. So we go in this league, and there's this group of guys that we're going to face up against, the first group, I think it was, this bunch of guys from the bar, they, this bar team. And I'm looking at these guys going, oh, easy win, easy win. Because I think if we put a case of beer at the end of a one-mile finish line, nobody could finish. They, you know, the beer would still be there. We got Humbled, absolutely destroyed, you know? Well, it seems like the more that I learn, the more that I learn that I have yet to, to know about pretty much everything. I continue to get humbled in almost anything I attempt, um, whether it's sports or leadership. <laughs> you get humbled in marriage all the time, parenting, uh, fishing even, fishing of all things. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to invite you to write this down. Life will humble you. Can I get an amen to that? Life will humble you. Jason, I want to say thank you so much for those comments that you made before the the songs today. You know, I've had a a chance to worship with people in Haiti not long after the, the earthquake, just where they lost everything. And to hear these people singing songs like we sang here, we praise you. Singing of the goodness of God, those types of lyrics, just passionately. My friends in Juarez, in the middle of of when it was the highest murder rate in the world, and everybody knew somebody that had been kidnapped. Everybody knew someone that had been killed. And for them to be able to sing those songs with passion, that is humbling humbling. And what we're going to be talking about today is the type of faith that we can have in Jesus where we're not only able to sing those songs when things are basically good, but in those darkest moments too. You know, As, as we begin our Lenten journey today, I would like you to consider something. I'd like you to consider that what I was talking about earlier about how we can continue to learn how much we don't know I want you to consider the possibility that that could be true about you and Jesus and me and Jesus, that we don't know as much as we think we know about him and that there's so much more to learn. Even if you grew up in church, even if you went to a private Christian school, and I probably should say, especially if you grew up in church, especially if you went to a private Christian school, is it possible that you don't know as much as you think you know, that I don't know as much as I think I know about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth,
Over the last four weeks, the ones leading up to today, we've been focusing on a very specific section of Scripture. We've been focusing on Luke chapter 4, verse 1, through Luke 9, verse 50. And this is origin story stuff that we've been digging into so far. Jesus has begun in this section to reveal who he is to the world. And then he's been calling people to say, follow me, follow me. And he's inviting people to become his disciples. He's revealing about what discipleship really is all about. And as Jesus is saying things, as Jesus is doing things, that people have never heard people say or do, they're struggling. They're struggling to even come up with a title or a category for this person. Those closest to him thought they had it. They thought he was master. They thought that Jesus is a master teacher until that incident on the Lake of Galilee with the miraculous catch of fish, and they're like, no, he's beyond that. And Peter began calling him Lord. And that went for a while until what we talked about last week, another incident on that same Sea of Galilee. We're like, okay, Lord doesn't even cut it. They are literally asking each other, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were running out of categories. Well, Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through Luke 9, 50, it all takes place in the same region a region called Galilee. And then Luke does something really interesting in the place that we're going to be landing today and then picking up with for the rest of Lent. Something really interesting happens. Chapter 9, verse 51. You can drop a pin right on it. It talks about Jesus now setting his face towards Jerusalem. And what Luke does from then on, the rest of Luke is Jesus' journey from Galilee into or on his way to Jerusalem. And then what happens in what we call Holy Week and right after. That's where Luke goes with the rest of this book. Well, right before that journey begins, right before, we're going to look at this today, the disciples, they lock into a new category, one that they hadn't used for Jesus yet. So let's take a look at that. If you have your Bible with you, let's open up Luke chapter 9. Verses 18 through 19. And I want to let you know, too, um, if you don't have a Bible at home, there's a place you can go, Bible.com. They've got a great free app right there. That's also where you can access that Bible um, reading plan that we're talking about here during Lent. All right, here we go. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 19. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets long ago has come back to life. All right, so we find out from this little passage right here that a number of people were not in agreement with who Jesus is. They're trying to process who is this person that says and does things that we've never seen anyone else say or do? What, what do we do with this? And some are, like, are said, yeah, okay, it's John the Baptist who was recently killed, back to life. Others are saying, no, it's Elijah, a prophet from long ago, back to life, or maybe one of the other prophets. They're, they're wrestling with, who is this? Who, who are these people? And then there were some others we see throughout Luke. They think he's a threat. They think Jesus, if we were to define him, he's a threat. He's a threat to our power. He's a threat to our authority. He's a threat to our belief system. Well, after asking the disciples what others thought, Jesus then asked them. 
He says this in verse 20. Okay, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're God's Messiah. You're God's Messiah. Now, in some of your translations, you'll see they use the English word Messiah. Some of them use the English word Christ. That's just translations of the, of the same word here. Um, the, the Hebrew version of that word, if they're translating more out of the Old Testament concept, is Messiah. Out of the Greek, if they're tra- going more directly out, of, directly out of the Greek, it's, um, it's, it's Christ. They both are the same title that means the anointed one. Now, is this the first time the category of Christ appears in Luke. Does anyone know? It's not the first time. It's not the first time that the category of Christ appears in Luke. In Luke 2.11, the angels refer to Jesus as the Christ. In Luke 2.26, Luke says, as, as the author narrator, he says the Holy Spirit revealed to a man named Simeon that he would see the Christ before he died, and then Simeon sees the baby Jesus. In Luke 3.15, there's buzz. People are talking. Could John the Baptist be the Christ? There's talk about that. In Luke 4.41, the demons are like, we know who you are, Jesus. You are the Christ. So this is not the first time the category Christ shows up in Luke, but it is the first time. The first time that the disciples make this confession. We believe you're the Christ, Son of God. Now, on this momentous occasion, what does Jesus do? The disciples finally get one right. They get a lot of things wrong. They get one right. He's the Christ. So what does Jesus do in that momentous occasion? Let's take a look at what he says. Peter just nailed this through the lens of Luke. Here is how he responds. Jesus strictly warned them, don't tell anybody. This. Don't tell anybody. They get it right. Don't tell anybody. Does that seem strange to anybody else? There, there's been times I've read that and I've just, I just keep going because I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. Because it seems like that is actually in conflict with what Jesus says later on. In fact, Luke has a, has a volume two called the book of Acts, very good. The book of Acts. And Acts opens, Acts right near the beginning, Acts 1.8. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So Jesus, this is coming. This is what Luke knows. But Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Seems like Jesus said, you'd be telling everybody this. And eventually he does. Again, in the past, I've usually thought, that's strange. And I've just moved on. What I want to challenge us to do in Lent now, as we go into Luke, don't just move on from some of these passages. Let's spend some time looking at some of these going, okay, that doesn't make sense. I'll just move on. Let's press deeper into Luke. So let's do that right now with this text. As I've been digging into this text in context, <laughs> it appears surprise. It appears linked to the conversation that Jesus was having. Right there. In fact, they call them pericopes. If you ever look in the Bible and you see these little different sections, they call these pericopes. This is all part of the same pericope. This is part of the same category of thought. If you're familiar with the Bible, we read with hindsight into what Peter says here. We read with hindsight of 
Peter's denial of Jesus, the cross, the empty tomb, and 23 ancient documents that are included in our New Testaments. And so we process, hey, you're the Christ with all of that stuff that they haven't experienced yet. So when Peter says you're the Christ, that means one thing to us. At that time, when Peter says you're the Christ, Peter very likely had a very different understanding of what Christ meant. You know, so, so many of these things I just mentioned, the disciples haven't experienced any of that so far, none of it. And if they, the disciples, were like most God-fearing people in that time and in that place, this would be true for them. Here's one of the things I came across as I was doing my research. There are many different views of the Messiah or Messiahs in Jesus' time. But look at this. They all revolved around a deliverance where? Where? On earth and an earthly kingdom. So there were lots of different ideas about who this Christ was, but all of them were really, this person's going to make my life better the way I think better should be here on earth. Then as now, the title Christ meant different things to different people. If Peter were to go right at that point and tell everyone, I found the Christ, he would have very likely misrepresented Jesus as he tried to explain and, and say who this is. Their expectations would have been very, very different. So even with this confession, even with this use of this language, the disciples, they've got a lot to learn yet about what Christ means. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. When Peter said, you are the Christ, he still had a lot to learn about what it means to be Christian. When Peter said, you're the Christ, he still had a lot to learn about what it means to be a Christian. Is it possible that that's true for us? That we still have a lot to learn about what it means for Christian. Now look what happens right away. Right away. Look at the very next thing that Jesus says. You know, right after that, that part about, hey, don't tell anybody. And Jesus said, we'll pick it back up at verse 22. Verse 22. And Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So right away, in that time and in that place where most people linked the category of Christ to a very specific experience, Jesus starts talking about a very different category here with, with Christ. What he's talking about is not the kind of category they had in mind or the kind of experience they had in mind. And look at the strength of the language. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer and must be killed. And they're doing a really good job as they're trying to translate this by including the word must because the original Greek language has that kind of force. It has the kind of force of God himself is ordaining this. This is a must Sometimes, as we talked about last week, sometimes pain and suffering, it's the result of sin. It's the result of stupidity. And then, sometimes, pain and suffering is necessary. Sometimes, there's no other way. Jesus isn't finished yet. We're going to keep reading. But first, I want to encourage you to write this down. A cross-carrying Christ was a stumbling block then. 
What Jesus is about to say did not fit their categories for the Christ. And as you're also going to see, that as the disciples continued on, they continue on like as if Jesus didn't even say these things. They just go on. Okay, you just told me that the Christ is going to die and suffer and all this? Yeah, okay, whatever. And, and they go on. If you have your Bibles, just take a look at what, what comes next here. Right after Jesus speaks about the next things we're going to say, what, right after he speaks about serving, suffering, death for a second time, Jesus has to interrupt the disciples in an argument about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Right after hearing this, right after it, and then right after that, still in chapter 9, Jesus sends messengers ahead of him. He's, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He sends messengers ahead into the region of Samaria to prepare for his arrival. People said, oh, you're going to Jerusalem? You're not going to stay here. And they refused to, to, to offer hospitality. So what did his disciples do? These disciples who have just been taught about self-sacrifice, you know, we're going to pick up our cross, all that type of thing. Instead of proclaiming the Christ that really is, they were proclaiming a Christ who's more like Thanos. Because they're like, should we call down fire? I'm not making that up. This is John, James and John. John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, who, who is the likely author of Revelation, him, he's, he's, his understanding of Christ at that moment was, okay, do you want us to call down fire? Should we rain fire on these people? And that's not all. Right after that, right after that, Luke carries a, 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 a rapid-fire succession of follow-me statements. If you do a word search for follow me, I, I can't think of a place in the Bible where there's more follow-me's in closer succession than this next section. And in this follow-me, follow-me, follow-me section, there's a follow-you, but to Jesus. I'll follow you, but as if that's an okay thing. I'm, I'm with you except for instead of I'll follow you to the cross, I'll follow you regardless. All right, let's go back to our text. Verses 23 through 25. And the reason I'm teaching out of the NIV uh, today is because um, this next section, this is a section of scripture. If you're looking for a great Bible verse to memorize during the series, here it is. And this is how it appears on your um, on that, uh, that wallpaper um, that, that's posted. All right, verses 23 through 25. And then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? The memory verse is the first two verses of that, 23 and 24. A cross-carrying Christ was a stumbling block then, and that's understandable. Because again, we have hindsight now where crosses become such a symbol, such a metaphor. In that time, in that place, it was literal. It was literal. Cross-carrying meant that you picked up that horizontal beam, you carried it to the place of your crucifixion where you would be humiliated and you would be executed. That's what it meant to take up a cross. Cross-carrying is something that powerful people did to you. 
to prove that they were in control, to demonstrate they had power over you, complete power over you. What kind of Christ, what kind of deliverer is going to say, take up a cross instead of take up a sword? Christ was a very different category when Peter said, you're the Christ. He didn't understand yet. There was so much more he had to learn. There is no way to overemphasize just how completely Jesus' words flip the script. From ruling over by force, which is the mindset of almost everybody in that time, to instead, we're going to win over through sacrifice. This wasn't just something that the disciples wanted to dismiss and move on from then. This is something, this what we're talking about right now, cross-carrying. This is something that I'm seeing more and more people, they just want to move on from today. Here's a place to write this. There's a place to write this in your notes too. Cross-carrying discipleship is a stumbling block today. Can I get an amen to that? It is a stumbling block for so many people. If you were selective in what you did and didn't look at in Luke, I was thinking about this. I was having this reflection actually on Sunday as I'm up in front of everybody. My mind is like, I hope my words were coming out coherent because I was thinking this thought in their head. that you, these, When Jesus is rebuking the demons and their silence, he's rebuking the, the, the diseases and, and people are healed. He's rebuking the wind and the waves. In my head, I'm going, well, no wonder some people come away with what we call prosperity theology or health and wealth theology. If you take that passage in isolation, it seems like Christian maturity is, I'm learning how to do that. I'm, I'm learning how to have sovereignty over my situation, where if I can say the right prayer with the right faith, I can take control over my circumstance. And I can get the health, I can get the wealth, I can get what I think I want if I get Christianity right. I can see how someone, if that's the only section you're reading, I see how you come to that conclusion. Many of the fastest growing churches today see scripture through that lens. Or a version of that, like a related lens, the one that Joel talked about a few weeks ago, the lens where we see Jesus as he's a master class teacher. And if you apply his principles, he can help you be successful as you define success at work, successful at growing wealth the way you define wealth, relationships the way you think relationships should be, parenting the way you think it should go. Well, in our culture, cross-carrying discipleship, it is becoming increasingly detached from Christ. We don't ask people, we don't ask people to consider giving up things that we think they should have. In our sexuality series this fall, I'm going to tell you about a meeting that I had not too long ago with area pastors that made me really, really sad. Really, really, really sad. It's all about this. We no longer want to ask people to give up things that we think that they should have. Really sad. In Luke 14, 27, Jesus says, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, direct quote, cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. And what makes me so sad about some of these conversations that, that I find myself in with, with leaders in the church is that people disconnect picking up a cross with the life that we ultimately want, the life that has real life on the other side of it. 
Well, rather than wrestling with what this means, I'm seeing more and more people just, I'm just going to move on from that passage. I'm just going to move on from the thing about the cross. Let me get to the thing that's going to help me with my life goals. Yeah, as a church, well, we have the courage. Well, we have the faith to press into a Jesus who we can praise in the storm. Well, we can sing, I will sing of the goodness of God when it seems like all goodness is been stripped away? Will we, will we press in rather than just see more and more people move on to other passages that better fit their narrative? Will we look at scripture, all of it, in context and not be dismissive of things that don't fit our narratives? Well, Lent is a great season to commit or recommit to that. Here's that verse that we've been talking about, Luke 9, 51. It says this, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Some translations say Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Love that. And did Jesus know what was waiting for him in Jerusalem? Yes, he did. In chapter 9, he says twice, verse 22 Verse 44, he says it again in 1725, 1831 through 33. Jesus knew exactly what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. But the disciples didn't have their minds wrapped around that yet. At least not yet. And yet, this is something that just jumped out at me. Jesus sent them out. Jesus sent them out at the beginning of chapter 9, before he's even proclaiming that he's the Christ. Jesus sends out the twelve. And then if you look at the very start of chapter 10, when they're still struggling with who's the greatest, all this kind of stuff, what does he do in chapter 10, beginning of chapter 10? He sends them out again. Sends them out at 72. There's one more thing I'd invite you to write down today. It's this. Christianity, it is grow as you go. Can I get an amen? Christianity, it's not, okay, I've got it all figured out. I'm signing on the dotted line. That's not how it works. Jesus is the master teacher. And this is really interesting. Best practice for learning is grow as you go. That's best practice. I made a commitment to follow Jesus when I was 18. That was 37 years ago. <laughs> I'm still humbled every day by how little I understand about that. It'd be really interesting if we had time. This might be a good thing in your small church with some friends. You know, how long have you been following Jesus if you're following Jesus? Are you still learning? Are you still growing along the way? Let's do it this Lent. Let's go into our scriptures with open hearts. Let's go into scriptures with open minds. Let's, let's go in and, 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 and not dismiss teaching that doesn't fit our narratives, that doesn't fit our, our pre-existing categories. Let's dig into Luke. And one thing I want to recommend, um, from time to time we recommend different Bibles, if you don't have a red-letter edition of, of the Bible, what a red-letter edition is, is the one that takes the words of Jesus and puts them in red, have at least one of those. Have at least one red-letter edition, and Luke might be a good time to pull it out. Let's look specifically, what did Jesus say? What did he teach? Let's go there. When we get together on Sundays, we're going to do our absolute best on Sundays to be faithful to the uniqueness of Luke. We're, we're going to do our absolute best to, to follow this overall theme that we see as Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. We're going to do our best to do that. We're going to be especially con, um, aware of unique content to Luke. 
So we're really going to try to look at Jesus through the lens of Luke. And then we were meeting with the teaching team um, just yesterday. And we we're trying to nail down some of the final decisions here. And we were saying, okay, can we go through this as best we can? Can we go through sequentially? But one of the challenging things with that is Luke repeats certain themes over and over and over again. You'll be reading, you'll, okay, he's talking about this, and he talks about the same thing here, and he talks about, it's almost as if he's trying to reinforce these themes. So one of the things we're going to do when we gather on Sundays, we're going to take some of these themes some of these big themes and really press into them. If we're going to be faithful to Luke, we, we've got to do that, including the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is there. Look at Luke. It's there from the beginning all the way through. And if you're going to be faithful to Luke, you cannot omit hard teachings about money and possessions. You can't. Go th- just read through it. It is everywhere. And then in Luke, Jesus himself had a lot to say about the end times. There is a surprising amount of content where Jesus himself specifically, and in an age where there's so much craziness all around us, that'll be a fun discussion. So those are some of the themes we're going to look at when we gather together. But I don't want you to limit yourself to 30 minutes on Sunday. Don't do that. Don't just go, okay, I'm going to learn everything there is about Luke in 30 minutes for the next, you know, whatever, seven weeks. That No. Dig in. Read a chapter a day. Read the Bible. Go with the Bible um, reading plan. You know, read it all in one setting. Do all the above. There's so much there. And what Luke has to say doesn't end with chapter 24, verse 53, does it? Luke continues into that book of Acts. And one of the things we see in the book of Acts, Jesus' disciples continue to learn and grow. And you begin to see them getting to that place where they're like, oh, this cross is something we embrace. You begin to see their language and their mindset just shift. Oh, it's an honor to suffer persecution for his namesake, to be so identified with him that someone would say, I didn't like Jesus, I don't like you. Interesting. There's a complete rethinking of their paradigms, a complete reordering of their lives. They continue to grow. As I was preparing this week, I came across this quote, the essence of discipleship is humility before God. Isn't that good? That's the essence. The essence of discipleship is for humility before God. So let's put this into practice right here, right now. Let's confess that Jesus is the Christ and that we have so much to learn about what it means to be a Christian. And we can do that through this sacrament of Holy Communion. If you're new to our church, when we commemorate communion, we commemorate a real event. Here's how it's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's so much the Bible doesn't say about communion. It doesn't give a specific age. It doesn't give a specific kind of wine or juice or bread. What it does say, though, is this, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 28. Let's examine ourselves. Let's examine ourselves. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So what we're going to do together is we're going to pray, us here in this room, 
We're going to be praying along with you these prayers. And if you can sincerely pray these prayers we're about to pray, we invite you to participate in this sacrament with us. And for the first time as Studio Church, we're going to be doing that together with our online audience. So what a, what a great time. So I invite you to pray with us. And if you could join me and pray, pray out loud here. And, and we'd invite you to do that too. It's a way for you to connect with us um, there through the, through the lens and through your screen. Um, let's pray these prayers together. As you prepare our set prayers. Here we go. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we'll be made clean. Father, I pray for my friends that are gathered here and, and all of us who are gathered all over the place in so many different rooms and locations. Lord, unite us now in this moment as people who all have so much to learn. And we're so thankful, Lord, that you call us before we're ready, ready, because we'll never be ready, ready, which is precisely why you came. We're so thankful for your sacrifice. We're so thankful for your example. We're so thankful that you love us enough to tell us the truth, that we will not find life chasing after things we think we want. We'll find life as we listen to you and trust you and experience the life we were created to live, not only now, for the next few decades or less, but into eternity. So Father, we now join our voices in a prayer that you taught us to pray and then a great new song that you inspired artists to create. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.